but so let's start with deconstruction. I mean, first let's start with, it doesn't mean destruction. Right. Uh, I think that's an important point to make, but it can mean a dismantling of our faith. Uh, Mm. It can mean, and this is with some Derridian nuance, Derrida, of course, so, you know, we kind of get that word deconstruction from the French philosopher Derrida, but it's not used in the same uh, deeply philosophical way as he does. Mm. But there is a sense when there's a, there's a connection between him in that we are exposing the fissures and cracks within the beliefs and practices that we once held dear. So it can be thought of in the sense of um, having a house and, and taking down sections of it because mm-hmm. it's not holding the foundation of who we want to become in the world. Then of course, reconstruction is the intentional building back up of the house that we want to uh, uh, inhabit in, mm-hmm. in the world. So that can look different for everyone because for some, they kick God out of the bedroom that was once his. Wish I had a mansion. Wish I was dressed up fancy. Uh, wish I on a pot on go with the rainbow by the time Clancy. Uh, wish I had no debt. Maybe then I can't flex. Go ahead and run number check. Wish I had no other sand most beat number checks. Wishing for my people. Uh, wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name my own beach and we bring our own. Friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn and can you believe it? This is episode number 99 of the podcast and part number four of our series, uh, Books My Friend Wrote. And today we're sitting down with the one and the only Mark Karras, who's going to talk to us about his newest book, uh, Religious Refugees. Funny thing about this episode, um, I completely messed up the title of the book um, in the beginning. (laughs) Uh, because for some reason I thought it was called spiritual refugees. And I think I thought that because, uh, I'm getting ready to talk to Brian McLaren in a couple of weeks. He's going to come on the show for a series we're doing on hell in the fall. And he wrote a book called spiritual migration, uh, the great spiritual migration that I had uh, on my desk. And so I think in my mind, for whatever reason, I was just calling it spiritual refugees because I had that book in front of me. I don't know. We're also like in quarantine brain, right? Like we've been in the house for like a thousand days and like sometimes I don't know what's going on. And so I think all those different things uh, were just kind of going on in my head. Uh, Jordan was upstairs running around during the interview. My cat was behind me meowing. There was just like so many things going on. And then Mark had things going on on his end. And we were just like, you know what? Like it's quarantine days and it is what it is and we're just gonna we're just gonna roll with it and just see how where it goes but anyway it was a fun conversation this is a great book uh you need to go out and pick up this book you're gonna hear all about it in this episode but uh, he sent me a pdf copy of it uh well before it was released so i could read it and um i actually just got myself a hard copy of it as well because it's that good uh, that I, I want it on my shelf uh, that I can go back to and refer to over and over again. So uh, this book is really for anybody who's rethinking their faith, they're deconstructing, they're evolving, they're changing, they're growing, all this stuff. You're in the wilderness. You're wondering what the heck is going on. What do I believe? Is there a God? How do I? Be- I don't know what's. I don't know what's happening. If that's you, this book is for you, and will help put a lot of language on the feelings that that you have. So so go check it out. Um, a few things. Uh, first of all, number one, next week we start a brand new series uh, for Pride, for Pride 2020. And uh, we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff related to LGBTQ inclusion. I have some great guests uh, coming on. We're going to kick it off with Brandon Robertson, who's going to talk to us about his book, The Gospel of Inclusion, and talk to us about all sorts of things we have other authors uh, coming on. We have one of my friends from Apple coming on as well to answer some of your questions. Uh, if you are in our closed Facebook group, uh, the What If Project community, uh, a few months ago, I put up a post and said, hey, I'm interviewing some people for Pride. What questions do you have for LGBTQ people? And so she's going to come on and answer all of those questions. What a brave soul. She is. So I'm excited to introduce you uh, to her. That'll be the last week uh, of June. And so it's going to be a lot of fun. We have five Mondays in June. So we have five different people coming on to talk about 
all sorts of different things. So get ready for that. Uh, Patreon.com slash what if project is a place where you can go to support the show financially. So if this thing has encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, head over there, check out different ways to give. There are different tiers. Uh, Every tier gets its own reward. And I've added a new tier this past week that people are having a lot of fun with. So I head over there and check out all the goodies as well as the the heretic shop. Speaking of goodies, we have some swag going on for the What If Project. Uh, If you like t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, backpacks, blankets, you name it, it's there. Uh, Go check it out. I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. Special music today is uh, from my friend Young Citizen. Uh, he's somebody else that I work with at Apple. Uh, he's a he's a hip-hop artist here in uh, the Charlotte, North Carolina area, and he's just doing great things in the community. And uh, I love his, just his attitude about life and uh, his passions and the gifts that he's been given. Uh, he's a very good steward of the gifts that he has, and uh, he's really doing great things in the community to try to push the world forward and encourage people and inspire people to do good in their own part of the world as well. So please go support him, uh, download his music on Spotify, Apple Music, share it, pass it around. Uh, yeah, that's it. Like I said, episode number 99. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited because next week, which is the episode with Brandon Robertson, is episode number 100. And uh, I'm sure I'll have a few things to say about that next week as I reflect on some things this week. Uh, But all of that to say, enjoy the episode, my conversation with the one and the only, uh, my college classmate, the great Mark Harris. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, we're sitting down with a repeat guest, um, a friend of mine. We went to Nyack College together way back in 2000-something, uh, the one and only Mark Harris. So, Mark, hey. welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> hey, it's great to be here, here, Glenn. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, thank you. So, uh, we last spoke, I guess, uh, maybe last summer. And, I mean, we talk <laughs> all the time on online mm-hmm. and Facebook and stuff. But, um Maybe kick us off. What have you been up to since since last summer? And for our listeners, I will say that Mark and I are recording in April of 2020. So we're in the middle of COVID-19 craziness. So Mark, what have you been up to? How is your community handling all of the social distancing and what's been going on in your world? Yeah, it feels since the last time we spoke, it feels like another uh, world, another it century, does. another yeah. civilization. <laughs> right. Uh, we're, we're, we're doing okay. I mean, we're, everyone's still healthy and well. Um, we're living next door to my wife's family. So it, it's not as isolating as it could be. Hmm. And our, you know, our community is just trying to survive and thrive. I think I just saw the statistics for at least our town and it was 17 uh, people with COVID-19. So it's not as crazy as it could be. You're in San Diego, right? I'm in San Diego. Yep. Um, but I think in San Diego as a whole, I think uh, they're up to like 14, 1500 yeah. uh, deaths. Hmm. Actually not deaths. Um, people who have uh, contracted uh, COVID-19. Cases. So, Got it. Yep. Yeah. Cases. So I'm still, as a therapist, I'm still seeing a few people face-to-face. I'm, I am considered an essential worker. I'm trying to get everyone uh, via teletherapy. But it's, it, you know, it's a little anxiety-provoking and trying to do every th- precaution necessary to make sure I'm okay and make sure they're okay. And, mm. But I uh, definitely trying to help people uh, as well through this time too. Yeah. Do you find you have a lot more people contacting you for help with like anxiety and stuff during this time? Yeah. I mean, there's anxiety. I do specialize in couples therapy. So couples are tearing their heads off. I'm sure. (laughs) They encounter the person they actually married um, that they weren't avoiding through excessive business work (laughs) and everything else that goes on. So yeah. Awesome. Well, your, your book, um, 
is your new book is called Spiritual Refugees. And that's what mm. we're going to be talking about today. And you sent me an advanced copy, uh, PDF, and uh, thank you. And I'm convinced it's going to make a huge impact on a lot of people. Um, but before we get into the thank book, you. yeah, I was wondering if you could give us a quick kind of summary of what the book is about. Who's it for? What exactly is a spiritual refugee? Actually, religious refugee, which makes it a little confusing. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. Hmm. I think Did I get the title of the book wrong? Is it religious refugees? It is religious refugees. Yeah. Shoot, how did I miss that? Interesting. <laughs> oh, well, anyway. <laughs> well, it's called religious refugees for our listeners. <laughs> no worries at all. No worries. It, it, but it is easily confused because a lot of people use the term spiritual refugees. Yeah. But when, I th- when you think of like um, people who leave, for example, a, a homeland, right? If they, they left um, some kind of territory that they just needed to get away from. Mm. But let's say they were trying to uh, Ukrainian refugee, right? So the first word is typically where their, their home was, right? So for me, they are religious refugees who are spiritual refugees. Mm. So they're coming from away from the home of religion, if you will. But in the, and the research bears this out. They are typically the most creative and spiritual uh, minded people in the church. Mm. And that's, that's through uh, Josh Packard's work um, as a sociologist who's done work on what and who my book is really for, the, the duns, if you will, or what they call the de-churched. So they're kind of done with the church, at least church as they once knew. Mm. Or let me put myself in that category, uh, at least the church as, as we once knew it. Sure. So it's really for those who are hurt or, or even some traumatized, disenfranchised, marginalized, and almost lobotomized by mm. the church they love. And it's for those who are presently experiencing or just about recovering from what I call religious disorientation growth syndrome, RDGS. And if I could just share some of the symptoms, and maybe some of your listeners uh, have experienced this or have gone past that initial stage of where that can be very intense. But it's these experiences, these symptoms where they could, one, doubt or deny one's religious beliefs that were once held as true. Uh, maybe a subtle or intense anxiety about a person's relationship with God. Increase of painful emotions such as anger, loneliness, shame, guilt, sadness, and despair. Isolation and criticism, whether it's feared or realized from members within their own family and or religious community. Mm. And sometimes it is the the feared because uh, I have found working with uh, the the D church and some people have been traumatized. Sometimes it's our own projections of what they're fearing other people are thinking or saying, mm. which in itself is totally anxiety provoking. Uh, and then the last one is just existential angst concerning a person's identity and, and future self. Mm. So for me, the, the you know RDGS causes people to suffer uh, emotionally, spiritually, and even physically more days than they care to experience. Yeah. But, and, and here's where post-traumatic growth comes into play. And of course, we've heard post-traumatic stress, but not a lot gets always talked about about post-traumatic growth. Hmm. So paradoxically, this disorientation can be a powerful catalyst that leads to tremendous emotional, mental, and spiritual growth. So it can be a profound transformational experience if we allow ourselves to go through this process mindfully, intentionally, and really, um, you know, seeking to navigate these tricky territories, especially if we can do it with uh, our unholy huddles, Mm. those folks that uh, we need a few others by our side through this uh, treacherous journey, really. Mm. I guess, like you said, it could either be a catalyst or you could get stuck. Yeah, or just get stuck in time. And, and yeah. trauma has a way of, you know, getting people stuck really in our nervous systems. You know, it's hard to move out of that place. And it's, you know, it's really not people's faults in a sense. It's, mm-hmm. you know, some people are like, yeah, I don't know how to get out of this. Right. I, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm fully going through, mm-hmm. but I know it's rocking my world. And some people can stay in a stage 
uh, what I call of angstville, where it's there is predominant emotions of of anger and confusion and and sometimes you're right, people do get stuck there for a while. You know, to be to be honest, uh, I already have a list of people that I want to give this book this book to, and it's not so much because uh, they are uh, religious refugees, or even because I want to try to convert them to become a religious refugee, but uh, a lot of my friends have friends and family who are uh, these kinds of people, or they're leading churches, and there's people in their congregations who are likely wrestling with these things. And so I think your book will do uh, wonders for the people who are the religious refugees, but also the people who are maybe ministering to. Maybe they don't understand um, kind of what that person is going through, or the different questions that mm-hmm. they have, or what they're wrestling with. So I think the book is going to hit just a wide scope of of people. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen with it. Yeah, thank you. I, I've had some pastors look at it, spiritual directors, and my hope that that uh, those who are leading churches will read this book. And yeah. I, if I encounter a, a pastor or someone who's leading a church, man, I'll, I will personally buy them a copy to, to read it. So, <laughs> yeah. And autograph um, it. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I'm, I'm, man, I'm just passionate about people's growth. Yeah. And sort of a, a narrow perspective that some church leaders have that, ha- um, that you know, when they think of the de-churched, you know, for some, it's so easy to label them as heretics. And it's so much more complicated than that. And so in the first chapter, I talk about research, mm-hmm. right? I'm not just making this stuff up. I'm talking about many, many research studies that have looked at these folks and said, here's some of the things that they're struggling with. Some of them are going through trauma. Here are some of the reasons why they're saying that they are leaving the church as they once knew it. Mm. So I think pastors would do themselves a, a welcome service to to read this, even if they don't agree with it. But if they're if they're passionate about being missionaries and entering other people's worlds, I think this book would be benefit to, to them too. Yeah, I think so. Now, prior to the the title "Religious Refugees," I believe the title was "We Are Legion." Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, astute. good. You're very so astute. I didn't, I didn't mess that yes. one up. But uh, first of all, why why the change? Yeah. So we're talking about Legion Gate. Uh, I was originally leaning towards We Are Legion for the title. And of course, that story's taken from the Gospels about the Gerasene demoniac or simply the, yeah. the healing of the demon-possessed man. So, hmm. I remember you put a Facebook post out there that got a lot of uh, action. <laughs> oh my good, yeah. So, so first, I want to say that Legion, Jesus's day, yep. simply meant a very large number, right? So, right. I, have, I have some biblical evidence for this, right? Matthew twenty-six, uh, fifty-three. Jesus, who was betrayed by Judas and was being arrested, said, "Do you think I cannot call my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels?" Hmm. So it does, it can refer to a large number. And so for me, in that sense, um, there are a large number of those of us who are done with church as we once knew it. But it's also, I meant it in a subversive way. And this is where it it would uh, felt very uncomfortable for some people. Hmm. So the demon-possessed man, in my opinion, could be seen as sort of this parable for those of us who have been hurt by the church. Hmm. So legion literally meant a large number of Roman soldiers, usually around four to 6,000 of them. So the demon-possessed man could be seen as not demon-possessed in the sense of thousands of you know, disembodied spirits inhabiting him. But I was kind of exploring his story through a, a psychological, biblical criticism lens. Mm. So he could be seen as a man who was traumatized by a thousand cuts by the oppressive and powerful Roman elite. So for me, he symbolically represented all of the God lovers in Jesus's day who were suffering due to the brutal and oppressive Roman occupation. So he represented the inner anguish that occurred due to not being able to peacefully worship and live congruently in the world that they inhabited. So it's a story exposing oppressive forces and subversely demonstrating the power of Jesus to heal systemic individual and and communal trauma. So how it gets connected to churches is I think some churches are functioning like powerful foreign occupiers attempting to squash identities, Mm -hmm. individual desires, and 
in anything that doesn't fit in with their pathological ideologies that masquerade as divine intentions and holy prescriptions. Mm. So consequently, an untold number of Christians are hurting today because of that sneaky leaven of burdensome and pernicious religious practices, policies, attitudes, and propositions. Mm. And they are unknowingly treated like the demoniac and, and occupied peasants, if you will. Mm. So it's a sad term, demoniac, because it, it does, it leaves that person nameless and reduces him to a label. And that's exactly what happens to many of us. We are reduced to apostates or heretics or, you know, uh, you know, we're um, allured by, by Satan, you know, we're mm. blind, we're whatever, you know. So, so he was staying in the tombs and he yeah. had been chained hand and foot and he was in a lot, so much emotional pain that the text says he literally, quote, would cry out and cut himself with stones. Mm. And unfortunately, I think that those of us who have suffered religious trauma can cut ourselves with stones of criticism. We can yeah. internalize that and say, you know, maybe I'm just not good enough, Christian enough, God doesn't love me, I mm. suck, I'm no good, I'm going to go to hell, I'm not worth it. All kinds of thoughts and, and self-critical attack can, can come mm. uh, because of that too. So. So some people were, were a little, yeah, I don't want to be uh, connected with like demons or something. So right. it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've often felt, cause when I, I read that section of, of the book, cause you have a, obviously a part in the book about that. And um, I, I was thinking to myself that kind of putting myself in demoniac shoes, mm. I've often felt that like even the doctrines and the theology that I was handed when I was younger, as I've grown, they've acted as the stones and mm -hmm. that I've cut myself with. And because they're the only stones that I had in my hand, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just didn't know, like, for instance, the doctrine of original sin, you know, like I'm, I'm no good. I'm a terrible person. You know, God basically didn't like me from the moment I was born kind of thing, you know, and like take those stones mm -hmm. and cut myself with them. And that has caused a lot of, of wounds and a lot of baggage that I've had to unpack or the doctrine of hell, you know, that, you know, we have this loving God that sends people to this eternal um, oven where they're mm -hmm. tortured forever because they believe the wrong thing. You know, and it just it created a lot of these, I think, cuts, a lot of these wounds in my own um, spirituality that I've had to unpack over time. My goodness, Glenn, you are, we are legion. Yeah. Um, my good, as, as I was reading the, the research studies uh, on this and, and the people who were affected even by something like the, what I call the original um, sinful hellbound people. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just, you know, internal, can you imagine? Now, I, I became a Christian when I was 21, and it's, it still affected me pretty deeply. Mm. But to be six, to be seven, eight, to, you know, to grow up with the sense that you can go to hell because you're not good enough. Mm. That you internalize this this message that God is somehow a uh, you know a, a vampire needing pure blood to be satiated and content, yeah. uh, so that He would be happy with humans and remit their sins if He received a perfect meal of pure blood mm. coming from a sinful sinless person, you know. And just to I mean, what what good are we if we mm. are so tainted? If we are so vile? that we deserve to be uh, tormented in hell for eternity, there's really not nothing good about us. Yeah. You know, and, and how easy mm. is it for, to internalize that message when you grow up too? Mm, that's for sure. It becomes part of, almost becomes part of your DNA after a while. Just wires your yeah. brain to think that way. Yeah. So all of this ties into two, what I would call, seems like buzzwords these days are deconstruction and reconstruction. And so before we get too much further, because I know those, uh, those words obviously come up a lot in your book. I think they're in the subtitle of your book too, right? Do I have that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, maybe we could uh, just pause for a moment and define those two terms. What is deconstruction? What is reconstruction? What's it refer to? Uh, mm -hmm. like where do these terms come from? Yeah, I, I kind of struggle with these terms a little bit. Uh, they're a little too philosophical in some yeah. ways. Yeah. Be because I've, I've encountered a lot of people who deconstructed 
and reconstructed their faith and they've never used those terms to like, hmm. I don't know, deconstruction. Like it's so, but at the same time, those terms have kind of been in vogue for, for a little bit now, which is why I chose to use them. But so let's start with deconstruction. I mean, first let's start with, it doesn't mean destruction. Right. Uh, I think that's an important point to make, yep. but it can mean a dismantling of our faith. Uh, mm. It can mean, and this is with some Derridian nuance, Derrida, of course, so, you know, we kind of get that word deconstruction from the French philosopher Derrida, but it's not used in the same uh, deeply philosophical way as he does. Mm. But there is a sense when there's a, there's a connection between him in that we are exposing the fissures and cracks within the beliefs and practices that we once held dear. So it can be thought of in the sense of um, having a house and, and taking down sections of it because mm. it's not holding the foundation of who we want to become in the world then of course reconstruction is the intentional building back up of the house that we want to uh, uh, inhabit in, mm. in the world. So that can look different for everyone because for some, they kick God out of the bedroom that was once his. Mm. So that uh, that's some of the things I think about when we throw around these terms, uh, deconstruction and, and reconstruction. Mm. Some people do uh, stay stuck, as you kind of mentioned, and sort of, deconstructing everything hmm. but I, I don't think emotionally uh, and relationally that is the best place to be in forever at the same time I appreciate where people are in their different spaces and places in their journey hmm. and so we have to give people grace too right it's yeah. this fine a tricky balance and as a therapist I'm always being conscious of that I, I there's no one size fits all, um, you know, grief journey or deconstruction, reconstruction journey. Mm. But people can be stuck in it for a little bit uh, too much where it becomes just toxic for them. And sometimes those they encounter. Yeah, I think I think to what you said is important that there's no, there's no mold exactly to the way it has to look. And I think like I've encountered a lot of people kind of going through this process. And there are people like you said, who who seem to be stuck um, in that deconstruction, just lighting everything on fire, you know, the wrecking ball to everything. Um, but there are other people who are doing that. Um, and then like they take everything apart, then they move into reconstruction. Then there's other people. And I think I might fall into this category where they're deconstructing and reconstructing at the same time. It almost feels like this one thing is kind of coming apart and going back mm -hmm. together while this other thing is coming apart completely. And it just feels like I have a whole lot of different Jenga towers that are coming down and going back up. It just feels like it's happening almost like uh, hand in hand, as opposed to one coming first and the other one following. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's many times a dance that takes place. Yeah. That's a good word. It, and, and it's, and it's really, if you think about it, it's something we go through our whole lives hmm. um, because we're always doing these, you know, deconstructing and reconstructing, but we don't want to use it for, for my opinion. We don't want to use it for the whole life's journey because then we miss on this sort of this season where it's so palpable. It's so mm. uh, encompassing. It's so, I mean, this is all some people think about and, and hell and God, is it real? Who's real? Am I real? Is God real? The church right. real? <laughs> and, and so I don't think we're doing that. Um, our whole lives, but there yeah. could be seasons where it could be considered the deconstruction reconstruction journey yeah. where, where it, it, it is, uh, is that way. Yeah. I think, you know, it, I think you can start with um, deconstruction, move to reconstruction, and then you have a season where everything is fine, but then come back to it again. And I feel mm -hmm. like, I feel like I, for myself, I've been in this season for a little while and I, I sense that I'm, I might be coming out of something a little bit, but I also have, I think, enough um, in my mind to know that this might happen again later on down the road. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the things you, um, I really appreciate in the early part of your book is that you point out that uh, deconstruction isn't something that we, that we choose. Um, because like you say, and I'm going to read a quote, uh, the deconstruction reconstruction journey comes at us like a snowball uh, slowly moving down the hill in winter, building and building, finally crashing through our psyche, 
leaving us completely disoriented. And I think this is a huge point to make um, that could be easily overlooked because I know for myself, like, I feel like I didn't really choose this journey. Like, it's not like I, I woke up one day and thought, you know, like, wow, I think I'll enter this, you know, incredibly painful journey where I'm going to question everything about my faith. I'm going to be criticized mm-hmm. by everybody in my life. And I'm going to go to bed questioning my sanity like every night. And I think it's important because I don't know how it's been for you, but for me, I can't tell you how many times I've had someone accuse me of choosing to go astray uh, from evangelical Christianity, which a lot of people would call orthodox Christianity, like almost as if like I've been plotting this sinister season of my life for years, like waiting for the perfect time to, you know, go rogue and run away from everything. And so maybe talk to me a little bit about like, how, how did your deconstruction journey start? Like what, what did that oncoming snowball look like for you? What was it like when it finally came crashing through your, your psyche to use your words? Yeah. So well said. Um, I think that dynamic is, can you hear me? Yes. Yep. Okay. Sorry about that. I, I, um, I think that that dynamic is tested by many. I mean, I don't think anybody asks, Hmm, you know, uh, how can I be hurt, wounded, confused, angry, rejected, and afraid? Hmm. Uh, so this journey does just happen to us. Mine is a little, man, it's a very long story, but I was, became a Christian and I got saved in a sense in a cult. It was oneness Pentecostalism. And during that time, it, you could find it in the cult section of the Christian bookstore, you know, how to, how to deal with and talk to and basically save the oneness Pentecostalism hmm. folks. I don't know how they're faring these days. <laughs> but so, yeah, I mean, we were, we, we were the only ones who had the truth, the only ones who were saved. If you never spoke in tongues, then you were not saved because that was the only sign of one receiving the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, men couldn't have facial hair. Women couldn't even trim their hair. You know, so it was a very, I, I couldn't even hang out with people who believed in the Trinity. Mm. Like it was a very, very, well, it was a cult. So mm-hmm. uh, long story short, I, I got out of that, but it took its toll. I basically ran from that cult due to, uh, I probably shouldn't say, but there was a major affair and some uh, unfortunate stuff that happened in the church. I basically ran away and I ran to Nyack College. Hmm. And it was at Nyack College, man, my whole world was turned upside down. Yeah. And I remember in the early, um, early weeks, I was freaking the hell out. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't know who was Christian, who was not. People were saying that they were. I could not trust anybody. Because remember, the people at Nyack College were, you know, they were the heretics. They were the unsaved. They were the ones who were being deceived by Satan. Mm-hmm. And then um, I wound up having major panic attacks. I remember being curled up in a ball in the the Mosley Hall there, uh, my dorm room. Of course, you know, no one really knew that at the time, but I thought I was literally going to go in in, uh, a psych ward. Mm. And that's actually where my my brother was. So I didn't think it was too far off to think I was going crazy. So I would say that that was the beginnings and working through that. Mm. And Nyack College was such a healing place for me in, in so many ways. Mm. But th- that event of transitioning was, I mean, I don't really remember me having a, a inquisitive mind, a deconstructive mind before mm. that event. But I remember that definitely shifted. But I still held on to the Christian faith. And Nyack College was still very conservative in its views of the Bible and, yeah. and the and uh, the Christian life. But I remember at some point really starting to question things. And there was this, uh, you know, there was a few doctrines that really started to unravel. One was divine sufficiency and one was divine violence. Mm. And I don't know how much we want to get into that, but, you know, it was these things that were very important to me. Mm. Like, in other words, a divine sufficiency for me that said God was all that I needed. And I, I took that seriously. I took that plea to be this spiritual 
person who God was my love, my everything. I, I didn't need any, like, I remember that vineyard song, you know, God is all I need, and, you know, but it was, it was detrimental to me yeah. because I, it was so incongruent with some other truths that were kind of starting to sprout within my being that said, God is not all I need. Mm. I need, I freaking need people, man. I need, I need a lot more skin on right? because I was getting so isolated and feel like I had to be some kind of Superman, super spiritual person. And so that was very detrimental, but working through that and then working through divine violence because mm. it, because it, it was so linked. If, if God did not do what I read in the Bible, uh, if God did not, you know, cause a flood, if, if God did not kill Egyptian babies, if God did not command genocide, mm. then how could I trust that that was the word of God? Yeah. So it took me, oh my God, it took me years. I, I spend a good chunk of a chapter, you know, kind of flushing yeah. all that out. Yeah. But it, it took many years to finally get to a place where I cannot accept that God, who is the most loving being uh, that exists, is less loving than me yeah. or you, yeah. or less wise than the, you know, those um, those people who know what restorative justice is, or or know how to healthily discipline children. Right? Yeah. If God is uh, if God is less wise than all of these. Uh, you know, gurus of what healthy development looks like, that freaking can't be God. What yeah. The heck? Yeah. Hmm. But that's another long story. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> now, did these things come up for you? Like when you were in classes at NIAC, like, did you, um, like, do you have any moments to remember like listening to lectures and things like starting to kind of come apart in your mind? Was it more like when you were in your own study time? Was it more in your conversations with other people? Like, I'm just wondering, like what, mm -hmm. when, like what sparked it? Yeah, I think actually most of the deconstruction took place after NIAC. Okay. So I, I wasn't really the divine violence. I mean, I just read it as it was back then. Yeah. Like I, I didn't even question it. It was like, oh yeah, God killed these people, and that made sense. God's a holy God. That's yeah, what his God purposes. Does. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, it was the divine deficiency that that sort of. Um, that splinter became uh, uh, unraveled a bit. And, and that was because I, I think I got those messages through teachings. Mm. And of course, I'm not going to name names. Sure. <laughs> but there, there were some teachings that made that very clear to me. And granted, I got some of those probably from the Oneness Pentecostal Church too. But it was definitely, I remember singing a song very vividly in Nyack College. And uh, it was a vineyard song. Mm. And I said, you know, that verse, you know, God was all I need. And I just couldn't yeah. sing it. I remember tears coming down my eyes. Mm. I couldn't do it. And um, it mm. wouldn't be congruent for what I really felt was true. Yeah. And so, of course, afterwards, you know, a much more larger understanding of, of who God is and how it's okay to need water and food and like I share underarm deodorant and, right. and, and toothpaste and gas for your you know, car, good right? books and <laughs> yeah. good music. And uh, I need my wife and I, I need other people as, you know, how can, how can a hand say to the foot that I have no need of thee? So right. it's okay. It's okay. And, and God is within all and in all of that. And that's how I could say in one paradoxical way that God is all that I need. Mm. If, if I think of God uh, being within all and sure. in uh, everything that does exist and, and move and have their being. That's helpful. So one of the sections um, in your book that I most um, appreciated, and I want to ask you a question about this was the part uh, with what you call memory reconsolidation, which mm -hmm. if I understand it correctly, so quiz time um, allows us to almost um, erase negative thoughts and feelings surrounding something like God or faith and then update that thought or that feeling from a more recent experience. Is that about, that's not about right. Uh, I would say that's pretty good. It's not bad. Yeah. Right? Okay. It's, it, it really isn't. Yeah. It's, it's the gist of it. So I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more um, in depth description of what it is and then maybe talk mm -hmm, to us mm -hmm. about 
Um, why is it important? Maybe walk us through like an example of what this might look like for our listeners who maybe feel as if some of their thoughts about God or the Bible or the church or whatever could use an update. Like we have a lot of people that listen who grew up believing that God is mad. Uh, they grew up believing that God is like their dad who maybe wasn't mm-hmm. all that good. Uh, they grew up believing the Bible is this an errant, perfect word of God. And like you said, there's things in there like divine violence that just confuses them now. So talk to that person who maybe feels like their thoughts could use an update and what that looks like on a more practical uh, level. Yeah, so I'll get a little um, slightly heady and then lead to the slightly practical here. Perfect. I really want to do kind of a a meditation practice on this. But memory reconciliation, really, it's just a, a fancy phrase for the phenomenon of memories being able, like you said, to be able to be changed or updated. So there was a time when researchers thought that once memories were consolidated, or another word is that they were formed, that they couldn't be changed. Ironically, that's what they thought. So we would have a memory and then would stay with us for the rest of our lives. Mm. So I'm not saying they can be erased, like in the movie Eternal Sunshine in a Spotless Mind. Um, sure. Jim Carrey. I love, love that movie. <laughs> yep. And I always think of that when I, <laughs> I watch that. However, um, memory reconsolidation allows for the possibility of erasing the sucky feelings and the negative Uh, thoughts surrounding difficult past events as we update or reframe or rewrite them really from Mm. a new perspective. So the core is still there, but all the stuff around it can be updated. The the memory itself, I should say, is there. But yes, the memory itself it is there, and that itself could be updated in the sense that new information could be added to that, okay. which then that memory can have new details. So in the sense, the memory itself could change. Mm. But here we're, we're talking about also the, like for example, it's not it's not the event that really causes the subsequent sort of PTSD, if you will, and the symptoms that arise from that. It's really what we've come to believe from that event. So someone who's sexually abused, of course, the event itself is vile. But really, the psychic suffering is the emotional valence that is attached to it and also the thoughts that are attached to it, too. Mm. I'm tainted. I'm not worth being loved. I'm, I'm, I'm ugly. I'm, I'm, something's wrong with me for the rest of my life. No one will love me for who I am. If only people knew. Like, all of these thoughts can be attached to it, as well as sort of fear and anxiety and shame. So, yeah, so it could be kind of uh, both there. So it's the brain's natural mechanism for overriding the negative baggage, if you will that comes with painful or traumatic memories. So this is great for those who have experienced religious trauma. And the, one of the most difficult ones it was for me was, and you alluded to it, the sort of angry, vengeful, punishing old man in the sky with a long beard kind of God. Mm. And what really dug this image of God deep within my nervous system was the association I had with God and my father. So my father was an angry, vengeful, punishing man on the earth. And so my heavenly father was just like my earthly father. Right. And those images based on, you know, uh, earlier memories collided and became entrenched and consolidated, causing me immense emotional and mental suffering throughout the years. So uh, the question becomes, well, how does it work? All right. Mm -hmm. Using this big word, right? Uh, Memory reconsolidation. So there are different opinions on this, but I'm going to go with Bruce Ecker's work, and he has brought the principles of memory reconsolidation all over the world. Mm-hmm. But to keep it simple, uh, how do I do this? It's not mm-hmm. just—it's not enough to just bring up the memory. Some people are under the persuasion: well, if you just bring the memory up and you think about it, you talk about it, then it could be changed. Mm. So, so that's not it. That's not enough to bring the, the level of updating or rewriting uh, for the memory. And mm. here's the key. Here's the key in memory reconsolidation. The key is to juxtapose the uh, original memory alongside a contradictory experience, which then unlocks the original memory, making it, this is a technical term, sort of labile. Mm. But that's just saying it becomes open to change. Mm. 
and so researchers are a little mixed on this, but some say, and, and Bruce says, it could that memory could be updated, altered, and rewritten for about three to five hours. Hmm. And then after that time, the the memory becomes consolidated once again. Hmm. So there is this period of time where we can update memories and get rid of that negative baggage that's associated with it. And the key is to juxtapose uh, that with a contradictory experience. So let me just flush this out because it, uh, I have to use a real life example. Sure. <laughs> so the God of judgment, um, I think that's a, a very typical one. So it could be an image of a God who's cruel, judgmental, harsh, critical. And so we can take advantage of, of memory reconsolidation mm. by juxtaposing that with a God of love. Now, I also want to um, say that it, it doesn't need to be a God of love because I, I'm sensitive to the fact that some people on their journey say, I'm not sure I'm ready to, to believe in God. Yeah. I'm, I, like even when you talk about the God of love or loving God, I'm not sure I'm there yet. And what's interesting is that you can use the principles of memory consolidation and the contradictory experience doesn't have to be the God of love. It could be a loving grandma. It could be a loving uncle. It could be an animal. It could be symbolically uh, uh, sort of a, a, uh, a forest, right? Mm -hmm. It's got to be something that brings within you this experience of positivity, of love, of, of comfort, of affection. So here's how it would work. You th think about an old image of God that we've been carrying and it could be that old angry man in the sky with the beard. That was my kind of image of God, punishing God, right? So I think about the, the, what that conjures up for me, whether sensations, uh, the sounds, maybe there's an image. He has a particular, you know, for me, it was the gray hair, it was a long beard, a very angry scowl. Mm. Uh, maybe for some, there's smells associated. So that would be step one. Step two is to, to quickly... Um, for the sake of time, just be in touch with the feelings that that brings up. Mm. So that could be anger, it could be fear, it could be shame or sadness. So allowing those emotions to come up, you know, and that could be overwhelming for some. Like, mm. I, I, I don't want to think about that. That's what I'm afraid of. Uh, even if I'm not fully aware of, of how much impact that has on me. But now that I'm thinking about that, yeah, I want to say F you to that God. Or hmm. again. So the key is to stay with that as much as you can for a little bit. Feel into what that image is, is bringing up for you. Now move to an image of God you find comforting. Hmm. And for me, what was really powerful was the prodigal motherly father. Uh, some people call it the prodigal, parable of the prodigal son. But for me, that image of a father who, you know, ran to the son, who mm. threw his arms around him, kissed him. And, oh my goodness. Mm. It's such a, a sort of a, a wonderful Jewish mother, if you will. So I, that's step three is to bring that ideal compassion image to mind. Mm. And so now step four might be for those of you found that image and it could be another image. Uh, it even could be that, like I said, a loving grandma to feel into that once again, hmm. right? Maybe picture God saying to you, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, right? And really feel the, the love and the warmth and the comfort and the care that that brings up. Hmm. Uh, and on a nerdy sense, we, we want to tap into our, our care circuit. We have a fight or flight system. We also have a tend and befriend or a care circuit too. Mm -hmm. So we want to kind of ignite that and trigger that, if you will. Now what we do, and here's the key, is to juxtapose both images at the same time. Mm -hmm. So then we think about the old image, then we think about the new image. And we feel that very deeply, both of them. But the key is to juxtapose them to sort of go back and forth, if you will. Hmm. And that, using the principles of memory reconsolidation, can impact the original memory, robbing it from its negative emotional baggage. And it's proven very effective for many, many therapies. 
And I would argue, and I've written about this a little bit, that the principles of memory reconsolidation are found with all healing prayer. Hmm. That the change mechanism that is occurring is memory reconsolidation. That is the process that the spirit that the divine is using to update and bring tremendous healing to the person who no longer has to believe the, the lies from the, the original memory. I love that. I was going to ask you about if that kind of tied into inner healing because um, uh-huh. I talked to uh, Brad Jersak last summer and he talked a little bit about um, some different things he's done uh, with work in inner healing and obviously at NIAC that was a really big thing. And even in um, at ATS Alliance Theological Seminary, we had a whole kind of class around inner healing and it was a very powerful thing for me because there were just some memories that I had that really didn't involve involve God, but were just very traumatic for me. And during mm-hmm. that inner healing time, um, they kind of take you back to that point, put yourself in the room or whatever, and uh, mm-hmm. let those emotions kind of come back. And, right. and the professor who was in my group with me, um, you know, he was praying and he said, now, as you're feeling all this stuff, because I want you to try to sense, like, where is God? Where's God? Where's, where's Christ mm-hmm. in the room? Mm-hmm. I can remember like looking around in the room and like, I don't see anything, but then all of a sudden I remember feeling this, this deep warmth come over me. And now when I think about that, that traumatic experience, I have mm-hmm. this other piece of inner healing prayer time that I have as well. And I think those two things side by side, I'm able to almost update those feelings, so to speak. So it, it feels very similar to what you're talking about. Absolutely. You, you just kind of name the steps and you yeah. juxtapose both the original feelings, the original right memory with those feelings and thoughts. And then here you have this warmth, this love in, and it's, it's yeah. And what's so fascinating about the brain hmm. is it doesn't matter if it's God. Yeah. You know, right. it, it could be the grandmother. It could right. be, you can call it, you know, the, the loving deity called the, uh, you know, Happy tutu. It, it doesn't matter, <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> which is, which gets into another very interesting conversation on spirituality and your healing and God and stuff. But mm. yeah, and I, I think Tim, Tim Desmond sums up the process very succinctly. Distressing memory plus the care circuit equals less distressing memory. Yeah. Now, is this process something that people... Like can can you go through this kind of stuff on your own at a certain level? Do you do you recommend like always doing it with somebody, whether a therapist or a if a pastor is training this kind of stuff? Or um... you, you know, people are doing it. Like I said, this is this is happening where change is happening, mm. right? So we don't even have to call it member reconsolidation. Some people are using the principles without calling it that. Right. Um, so there are, man, a lot of therapies as, as a licensed therapist and a lot of models are taking advantage of this. I mean, books are being written that are encompassing these principles. You know, it's, it's a big deal in the therapeutic world and people are being changed and transformed. And of course, you know, it's a lot of it is secular. Not, God is not coming into the memory and, and saying something to the person, but you're sure. still experiencing transformation because yeah. you're taking advantage of this process. So where healing occurs, it could very well be uh, memory reconsolidation is taking place. Mm. And to make it even more simpler, it's we need really it's just corrective emotional experiences, mm. right? It's I, I I don't trust myself. I don't trust who God is. I'm leaning towards this perspective. And what helps, we all know, it's talking to somebody else where they say, dude, or, or listen, I agree with you. Mm. God isn't violent like that, right? You are not crazy. You are not a heretic. I believe in you. Right there, you are experiencing a corrective emotional experience. And a lot of those sort of experiences build up to the extent where it does affect the original uh, traumatic religious memories mm. i think that's so powerful because i think a lot of people feel stuck in those memories i know for a long time i did you know i felt like well this happened to me this is or this is the way i've always thought like this what else am i supposed to do but i think just the fact that there's hope that those things can be updated and perhaps changed is is wonderful Neurons that fire together, wire together brother absolutely so mark <laughs> we are nearing the uh the end of our our time Got it. before you go though um 
Speak for a minute to the people who are in this deconstruction, reconstruction process. Maybe they feel stuck. Maybe they, they're at a point where they're, they've expressed some ideas. Their old tribe or their family hasn't um, necessarily agreed with them. They've taken on some heat. Maybe they're criticizing themselves as well. What, what, what word of advice do you have for that person uh, who wants to keep moving forward, but they feel like they just want to get stuck and not go any further? Yeah. I just want to say that you're not alone, hmm. right? We are, we legion. are legion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just to start there, you're not crazy. Um, you don't have uh, a thousand demons in you. Hmm. Uh, it's you're, you didn't ask for this process. Uh, you're not who the, the religious elite says you are. Hmm. Uh, you are you are a human being, and the research says that you are someone who's expansive, who's creative, who sees a very large world that God's a part of, that it looks at the world and, and doesn't want to be bogged down with moral prescriptions, mm. but you want to work with God and work with other people to be the creative solutions in a world that God actually loves not a world that God actually hates and wants to burn to a crisp. Yeah. So I, I, I want to say that number one, you know, you, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, that there is a path forward and it, it's, I mean, hopefully there's my book. I know that other books, I think Kathy Escobar's book, faith shift is yeah. man. I, I, I would recommend that to anybody. Uh, so there, there's some new works emerging. I know even within my uh, the publishing company that I'm a part of, I think we got four books on this on the roster that's coming. Mm. Um, I was even co- in contact with Brian McLaren, who endorsed this book, and he's coming out with a book on this very same topic oh, wow. uh, in 2021. Mm. Um, and then even I, I talked to Jennifer Knapp, who she's actually writing a book on this subject as well. Wow. So. Colby Martin it's just wrote one too. Yeah. Very cool. So yeah. it's in the air and, and people like me are saying you're not alone. That's we good. want to develop tools and resources that you can have to help you with your journey. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's really encouraging. Awesome. Well, Mark, um, thank you for joining me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always leave feeling encouraged. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks, I'll put all the links to you and all and your books and stuff like that in the show notes as well. Sounds great. Thanks, Glenn. Right, Have a good one. Okay. You too, bro. Bye. King is giving a festival. I wish. King is giving a festival. I wish. King is giving a festival. I wish. Wish I had a mansion. Wish I was dressed up fancy. Wish I on a pot and so go with the rainbow. Pot of Tom Clancy. Wishing I had no debt. Maybe then I can't flex. Go and hit a run, I'ma check. Wish I had no other sand, most beating on my chest. Wishing for my people. Uh. Wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name my own future, we bring our own sand. Wherever we live is so bland. So I much wish. we're high on demand. Tiptoe around throwing high lows. Feel like James I Brown, love, we go in here to dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champion. Go ahead, call the ambulance. I so wish. we said our own ambience. Dub TTG train to go. I Let's wish. talk, no rambling. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Wish I had red bottles on my feet. Everything falls on me. Then I start clicking my heels to the ride. Did this beat neat? Ever wanna follow my speed? Let's close those more keys. Carolina Rose on freeze. Wishing I could fly to the keys. That will be more free. Something in my mind hit the dough. Put on my fresh fit. Toast Sir Charles, let's go. We about to go and get it. Uh, let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champions. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love. It's real love. But I 